All right, here, we're talking about Mother's Day for just a couple of minutes. Let's do a little bit of a quiz. We're going to take our Bibles, we're going to end up, I think we're starting, we may not, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, I think is where we're going to start, one of the spots here this morning. Oh yeah, you can see the difference between mom and dads, uh, as somebody put it out. Here, let's just do a little bit of quiz, see what you think about it. In modern history, how old is the oldest mom to give birth? This is in modern history, we're not talking ancient Bible history, but modern history. One of these ages... Oldest mom in the last couple hundred years, that is, that to give birth. 70, somebody said. And 70 years old, in 2008, the lady gave birth to the little baby. God bless her. Uh, here we go. Giving birth to most kids in modern ages. How many were born to one woman? 15, 25, 28, 32, 59, 58, or more? One lady. It's not 28, it's more. It's over 32. It's over 53. It's over 58. 69 children. Okay? Six, all of them, all of them, those are the years that she, that she gave birth. Um, those, all of them were multiple births. And all of them survived up beyond the age of two. Okay? Amazing. God bless her. What is the heaviest baby born in modern history? 14, 16, 17, 20, 19, 22, 25 pounds or more? 17? Nope. Nope, not 14. Not 16. Not 19. 22 pounds. God bless her. <laughs> what day of the week has the most babies born? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. This is in America. It's not Wednesday. It's not Thursday. It's not Monday. You're getting it close. You're getting close here. You're going to hit it eventually. I know somebody's going to get it. Which day? Not Sunday. Now you're down to three. It's not Saturday. You're down to two. <laughs> It's not Friday, it is Tuesday. You got it. Okay, give the man. What month most babies born in America? Not September. It's not May. It's not February. It's not September. Not June. It's not February. You got it? You're getting down close. Okay, it's August. Okay, it's August. Okay, this is the, uh, oh, there's two more. Uh, which holiday sees the biggest percentage of flowers sold on that holiday of these? Christmas, Valentine's Day, Mom's Day, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, or Easter? Valentine's Day is not the most. Mother's Day is not most. Easter is not most. You're getting close. You're getting really close. These are the top three. Okay, 30% of the annual sales, Christmas, Hanukkah, and then Valentine's Day, Mother's Day are tied. Okay, this is the important part. Ladies will want to hear this. How much will the average American family spend on mom today? Is it 75 bucks, $99, 127 162 or more? This isn't your family. Okay, this is the average American family. <laughs> I'm getting some of you in trouble by putting this up, I know. <laughs> what do you think? It's not 75. And it's not less, okay? That's <laughs> it is 162, yeah, 162. So ladies, you're going to find out if you're treated average or not today. You can ask for the receipts. <laughs> Here we go. We are talking about getting more out of your Bible now that I just caused division in the homes. Uh, we're talking about how to get more out of your Bible. Let, let me do something that I haven't done yet. And I'm going to, the next, this today and the next couple of weeks, I want to get into some practical areas that I want to mention. We have a young man that grew up in our church when I was the youth pastor. He was part of our youth group. And he has since gone on, uh, went to seminary, got his doctorate, things like He's related to a uh, uh, son-in-law to uh, Larry and Gloria Hoover. Some of you remember Mike Heiser. 
Okay, a few of you might remember. Uh, years and years ago, he's here. Anyway, he published three books just recently and sent me a copy of them. And uh, in this, the one has brief insights on mastering Bible study. And it's talking exactly what we've been talking about, little quips, it's little articles that he wrote, a compilation of them, that talk about various things to keep in mind when you're doing Bible study. So what I want to do for the first few minutes here is very, 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 very practical things and just use one-liners and explain. And some of these are from his book, to whom I want to give credit in that regard. How do I improve my Bible study? Let's think these through real quick. It's, keep in mind, it's never too late to start. What we mean by that is what? It is never too late to start studying your Bible. Some people have told me, they said, well, I'm too old and things have come hard. It's never too late to start. Just never too late to start a Bible. You said, well, you know, I've been saved so many years and I haven't really got into the routine of a Bible study. It's never too late to start. It is a good thing to do to start practicing. Listening to sermons should not be your only Bible study. And uh, a lot of you do this, and it, it, it's very personable. I put the notes there because that's a helpful thing to write notes and to just create so you can take with you afterwards and then even reference and go back, uh, which, which is really, really wise. Somebody came to me just a couple weeks ago, and they said, wait a minute, I was just doing a little bit of research. You made a comment about something in a sermon. Um, it had to do with, I called them the Sea Peoples, the Philistines coming down the coast and invading, and that they had come from the Aegean Sea. And they said, you know, I was doing some more Bible research and looked up the word Philistia, and I saw that in Genesis, it's listed, and they didn't come from that region, but they came from southern southern region. Very good question, excellent question. Uh, the terms in the Hebrew are a little bit different between those two those two different groups: the one that the Philistia in Genesis, and then the other group. And uh, biblical archaeological review, if you are familiar with that, and do any kind of article study, it'll point out that there's a number of records that indicate that the Philistines, along with Phoenicians, came down from the north. And uh, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that gives. Uh, evidence for what I had said. But I really appreciate they wrote that down, they went back and they researched and they did a little bit just out of curiosity. And that type of thing happens sometimes where you hear something and so it prompts study. But just listening to the sermon isn't your study. You're taking in your study should come following that, okay, proving whether we are telling the, the full account and, and uh, whether how the, uh, the Thessalonians, they're, they're more noble, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians in that they studied to see what Paul was preaching was true. And so you should be doing Bible study. Beyond the study that I do to give you, do your own Bible study. That's helpful. Believe that God's going to help you, and he will. As you are studying, God's spirit will help you. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Getting, some people think that familiar Familiarity breeds contempt. I don't think so. In this area, greater familiarity with passages should improve your understanding. That means that in Bible study, where I should be starting is just reading, reading, getting familiar. In fact, um, I heard this said by several professors. I've read this by different uh, biographies that I read about famous preachers that have that God has used. Almost every one of them has this this. Um, counsel and this advice. Before you do a book study, read that book through multiple times. Read that section of scripture through multiple times. Don't read it with the idea of, okay, what do I get out of it for the people? Just in your personal time, in, uh, in the, in the uh, pastor study, uh, in your previous weeks before. Just read, read, read to get familiar with it. And just let it keep on going through your own mind, your own heart before you start speaking to others. So you and I would benefit by just reading multiple times different passages of scripture. Um, this, this is a phrase that applies to all areas of your life. Five minutes is a long time. Now it may not seem long when it comes to certain areas, but does five minutes waiting in line at the cash register seem like an eon? Does it seem like a long time when you're waiting for one of those trains to clear the tracks and you can move again in traffic coming across Lebanon? Five minutes is a long time. When you start adding up the five minutes that you could do in just a little quick study here, uh, listening to something when you're driving, putting it on and listening and doing the audio uh, study or you know, where you're hearing somebody explain a passage, take advantage of those moments and let them accumulate over a period of time because learning is an accumulation all the time. You're always adding and you're saying, okay, I'm adding a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. And so five minutes is, a, is not to be discounted. Just e even sitting and reading your Bible, if you're not in the habit, five minutes on a regular basis, it's not a lot, but it's somewhere to start and it's helpful as you add that up together. The aim of your Bible study, keep this in mind is to learn what it actually says, not what you want it to say, not what you are, you know, um, proof texting drives me nuts. 
you know what we mean by proof texting? I have an idea, and I have an opinion, now I'm going to find verses that back up my opinion or my idea. If you do that as your basis, you can make the Bible say anything. You can find some verse out of context. You can, you can come up with something. If you're just motivated to say, I want to find a verse that says that it is evil to, you know, you name it. And you just, and, and you hunt for that particular idea with that in mind, as opposed to saying, now wait a minute, what does that passage really say? What is that text really saying? What does the scriptures really, really say? And uh, so our study, when we come to the Bible, should be, okay, I want to find out what this text says, not, am I right? Am I in my argument with my friend? Am I on the right side or the wrong side? Uh, what does the passage really say? Now, you may be motivated to start the study because you want to find out if you're right or wrong with your discussion with your friend. But still, when, you're, when you want to be honest, if you want to be honest, say, okay, I want to find out what does the passage say. Sometimes, and I've done it, sometimes in that Bible study, saying, okay, I've had a discussion with a friend. I'm not sure if I agree with their interpretation or their, their application of that. And when I go back to the text, there's been a, more than a few occasions that I go back and, you know, and it's like, you know what, I think this is really tough to say. I think they are, they are right, and I was, no, let's not go that far, okay. <laughs> it, we might put it this way, they are clearer or righter than what we are, okay? And so, do that. When Bible study, again, is to be a, a discipline, that is, you're going, you're open-minded, you're, you're focused, you're studying, not just, okay, you, you probably have never done this. I have done this in my Bible reading and Bible study. I can be reading the text, and it's not sinking in. Okay? I can be reading, starting with verse 1, and read through an entire chapter, and my mind during that time, while my eyes are rolling, my mind is doing different things. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done that. None of you have ever sat and listened to me preach, and your minds have wandered. Right? Let's be honest. It happens to every one of us, probably in every, every setting, to some degree. And, um, and so when you and I come, it's not just, okay, when I come even for, even for our Bible study like we'll do this morning, it, we can either walk away and say, well, I put in my time, or I can discipline myself to try to pay attention to the best of my ability and glean what I can out of the text. And so that's the idea of not making it a ritual, but make it a discipline in your mind. Good Bible study is discovering the meaning of the text first, not how to apply it. You're teaching, you're, you're teaching an elementary class. You're going to help in junior church. Don't run to your Bible and say, okay, I need to find a verse that I can just grab real quick and preach it to the kids. Study the passage. Study to find out what it really means and not just grab a verse. Again, that's almost like a proof texting thing that can be very dangerous. Don't shut out or avoid studying the tough topics. Um, a friend of mine was relaying how he went to a church. He thought, hey, this is a church that moved in the area. He thought, this is a church that, um, you know, the first Sunday they were very, very friendly. They had children. They thought, this is great to have that children's ministry. And the people were real friendly. And he said what really turned him off to the church was the third Sunday he was there. The pastor was preaching through a passage in the book of Hebrews. And as he was preaching through the book of Hebrews, he came to one of those tough paragraphs in the book of Hebrews. And the pastor announced at the beginning of the sermon, he said, now, many of you are anxiously and waiting for me to deal with this tough passage, but it's one of those passages that is so tough in the Bible, nobody can fully understand it, so I'm just going to skip over it. We're not going to study it. If we say that every passage that is difficult and takes time to study, we're going to get just ignore it, is that honest Bible study? You and I could be jumping through a whole bunch of different passages without looking at them. You need, you and I need to, and that's by the way the beauty of doing these, the studies, the expository studies is you're forced to study certain of those texts and go through them in your personal time, my personal time. And so don't avoid tough topics just because the wording sometimes, the words or you read and you say, ah, they're using big terms and I don't use big terms. You don't need the big terms. You need to know the concept and the truth. Study the topics. You know, you want to, you know, I'll come to it in a moment. Use variety in your Bible study. What I mean by that is this. You could go verse by verse through a book. But remember, the verses were not written independent of the rest of the book. When Paul was led by the Spirit to pen Ephesians, how much of it did he pen? The entire book. Were there chapter distinctions? No. 
Were there divisions in verses? No. That is put in years and years and years later. So always remember, if I'm going to study through and take a section of a book, remember there's a bigger context. And as I'm looking at it, I can do that exegetical study. Or you might do a Bible study. And you say, okay, in my, in my personal Bible study, I want to study a topic. There's some topics you might be very interested in. I want to study a topic on angels. What is the ministry of angels? You won't find one singular passage on that. If we want to study and talk about worship... There's not one singular passage on that. You have to study the whole. If you want to study about church organization, you can't just find one passage. That's why it is valid at times that even we as a group, we do book studies for the most part, but there are times we need to veer off and do topical studies. It's very important. Um, I veered off and, and decided to take it to the other Sunday school class. It is important for us periodically to do family studies. But there's not just one passage that deals with marriage or not one passage that deals with parenting. And so those are times that we do it and we break away from an exegetical or expository study, I should say, an expository study that goes verse by verse. Why? Because it is important for you and me to know doctrine, to know practical areas and do some of those studies. Character studies are phenomenal studies for you to do on your person. I want to find out more about the life of Peter. Well, you're going to bounce around in the Gospels. That's good. That's it. And by the way, variety is the spice of life. It's good to keep your variety in your Bible study. Prayer alone is no guarantee you're going to be accurate. I prayed about it, therefore... Well, a lot of people say they pray about a passage. Prayer is no substitute for a Bible study. Um, I, don't, I forget where I had you turn, but I'm going I'm to end up here for a second. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and just remind you of a key verse that we've been doing in this study in, in uh, Timothy's writings, where he's talking to him, uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. I remind you what it says. It says in 2 Timothy 2 15, study, do you remember this text? It's a command. Study to show yourself... Okay, approved unto God, what is that? A workman that needs not to be ashamed. Why? Rightly dividing the word of truth. The rightly dividing is cutting it straight. It's the idea of following the pattern that was set by God, you know, like the seamstress, the, the tent maker, Paul, cutting along the lines so that they can put the tent together and it would match up. So just saying, okay, God, God help me. That's good. We need to do that, but that's no substitute for study. That you, you have to stop. You have to think. You have to put some effort into this to be accurate. You have to work at it beyond just, okay, God, whatever comes to my mind is what it is. Well, by the way, is that where false doctrines have come? People can say, it just came to my mind. That doesn't validate it, okay? We have to validate it by Scripture and study the whole counsel. Don't use Deuteronomy 29, 29. Do you remember Deuteronomy 29, 29? Secret, secret things belong unto the Lord. That verse is often quoted. Do you know what the context of that verse is? It's not the idea that you can't understand Scripture. The context is he, is he is talking about, in that context, he's talking about disciplining the nation of Israel. How if they don't follow my word, he's wrapping up, repeating the law. He says if they don't follow, here's what's going to happen to them. And he gives a picture of what's going to happen. They're going to be kicked out of the land. They're going to be brought back into the land. They're going to be beaten up some more. And I'm going to finally end up putting them back out of the land and bringing a remnant back to that area in the far future. And then he says right after that, secret things belong to the Lord. Okay? But we are responsible for what he has already revealed. There's two possible uh, interpretations of that text when he says secret things is that secret things could be more prophecy because that's what he's just dealing with and dealing with the discipline of Israel's prophetic things that he isn't revealing everything at that moment that's a legitimate interpretation or there is more that I'm going to give you which by the way is a very inter a very literal interpret uh, uh, a very um, possible interpretation because was Deuteronomy the end of revelation Yes or no? Was there more that came after that? Yes. Okay. So at this point, I haven't revealed everything to you, but you're responsible for what I have revealed to you. It is not a passage that we are supposed to grab to and say, well, you know, God, and it's true, God has not revealed everything. Well, okay, we can't understand the Bible because secret things belong unto the Lord. Well, there is a truth to that, but that's not what that text says. Okay, God hasn't revealed everything to us. We understand that. And we won't know until we are fully known before him. And even in heaven will we do more Bible study. Remember, when we get to heaven, we're not omniscient. 
There is still going to be study. There's still going to be an opportunity to do that. And so um, let's remember that when we study, our context is king. Always understand where, why it was written. Understand the worldview of the writer. These are simple things that we've talked about. Let me just run through a few more. Work at learning the Bible chronologically. Do not make the assumption, okay, uh, by the way, which, which book is the first in your Bible? Genesis followed by, this isn't, this isn't major. Okay, no trick question. Genesis, Exodus. Okay, and you keep on going through. Okay. Did all the books through the Old Testament happen? Did all the things that they, the prophets, for instance, did they come in history chronologically? I'll do it from your point of view. Did, um, did, let's do the big prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Okay. If we go through that, and Lamentations is in there, but those names of those prophets. Okay, as you go through those, did they happen chronologically? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. In other words, each one was after the other. No, they're not. They're not in a chronological order. Okay, Ezekiel, some of his story is, is parallel to or same time as Jeremiah, and what Jeremiah ends up is uh, wrapping up at the end of Jeremiah is post-dating Ezekiel. And so uh, when you're studying the minor prophets, don't assume they're written in chronological order. They're not. They're not written in chronological order. Um, and why were they put together that way? Why were those, you know, why was uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, Ezekiel, Daniel put before the minor prophets? Because they all lived before them. No. No. Why were they, why were they grouped that way? Why were the, why were the minor prophets put before the major, or put after the major prophets. Do you want to guess? Okay. Because there's the size of the books. These were the major writings. These were the... <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Okay. Um, and so, so when you're studying through those books, do not, do not make this, this conclusion. Okay. Um, that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... Acts? Okay, so Romans was written after Acts. And then after that was the Corinthians, and then, yeah. So they're all, they're all, written, they're all put in order when they were written. That's not true. That's not true. Okay? And so it doesn't make a difference what book could have been written earlier and what information they're building on later. You go like this. Okay, okay. Yes, yes, because the Bible is given in a form of what we call progressive revelation. He's building and building and building. So is it important to figure out which books might come first? You want to do a whole Bible study. You want to do a whole Bible reading for a year? Figure out, and by the way, you can't get exact on some of this because some of it we don't know who was first. But for the most part, read your Bible through when what books came were written first, second, third, fourth historically. It would give you a different perspective of Bible history. And so studying your Bible, that may be very helpful. Um, do most of you have what's called cross-references in your Bible? Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, no? Okay, those, those columns in the middle that, may, that say, okay, other verses, they weren't randomly, they weren't inspired. They're not inspired by God, okay? Um, and uh, they were put there by people who are Bible scholars that saying, oh, by the way, this could be talked about at this text. This could be talked about... Take time when you're doing Bible study. Look up those cross-references. They're not inspired of God, but they may be very, very helpful. In fact, some of you have study Bibles. And in your study Bibles, they might at the beginning of a book, they give you a lot of background information. Boy, you should read that. You should read that in your Bible study. Those guys who put those together, typically they are trying to write things that would be helpful for you in the text. Now again, I want to warn you. When you read through the Bible study, I had somebody come to me a few years back that said, hey listen, this person said that this is what this passage means and it's in my Bible. Well, just because it's in the study notes doesn't mean it was inspired. Okay, and so could some, somebody have a different interpretation of a passage in their study notes? That's a possibility, but for the most part, you're picking up stuff that is good, solid, conservative, and you're going to really benefit from those study notes. They're, they're a, a commentary within your Bible. Take advantage of those. When you read about a place, look it up. Look it up. 
I, I mentioned it last week, and several of you said, "Wow, I didn't know that." Where we just when they're when they're writing they're writing history, and last week we pointed out Kish is from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was from the city of Gibeah. But he was rejected at first when uh, Saul was rejected. I'm sorry, his son, son, Kish's son. Well, start thinking, wait a minute. Just, you know, f- you know, 30 years before maybe, there was the Benjamite revolt that we read about in the last three chapters of Judges. And Gibeah was a center part of that, you know, the epicenter of that revolt. That makes a lot of difference of why there could have been a reaction against Saul at the very beginning. By just learning the places. And places mean something. Yeah, it, it's going to be a whole lot uh, different. Does Dunkirk mean something to certain generation? When you say Dunkirk, when you say World Trade Center, okay. When you say Columbine, does that mean something to us? Does that ring something? Okay. When we t- put forty years down the road, it won't have the same impact. When we read the Bible. We have to remember that the authors are giving, day, they're giving places that have tremendous impact to the audience. And that may have some significance to the audience as they're hearing or reading that section of Scripture. Try to put, your, put yourself in their sandals to figure out, okay, if they're talking about certain places, what is the significance of that place? or that reference to that town or whatever, do a little bit of digging. Do a little Bible study. You can't open it up a whole lot more for you. Except the simple and obvious. I, this is this just, I'm, I'm sorry, I cringe at certain things. When somebody comes up to me and say, I found something in the Bible that no one ever has ever seen before. The Bible's been around a whole lot longer than us. And there's been people studying it for... Yeah, I mean, for since the Bible's been given. If somebody says, I have found something in the Bible that nobody else has ever found, what should be your immediate reaction? Should you go, ding, 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 ding? Okay, you know, a train wreck coming. Um, you know, but some people feel very, very, very profound. I was reading a book by a gentleman who says, you know, and he kept on saying in the book, I'm a Bible scholar, I'm a Bible scholar, and I'm reading and going, yeah, I got that, I got that, okay, you, you're, you're, you think you're scholarly. And he said, there was one passage I was studying in Hebrew, and nobody ever that I've looked up through all of history has seen this certain thing in the Hebrew in this one text that opens up a whole new doctrine. And my immediate reaction is, if you found something that nobody else has ever seen, and it's a whole new doctrine, it is probably, yeah, it's probably error. <laughs> right. So you and I, again, we want to be profound, and yet we don't have to be pseudo-intellectual. Okay, we can go to the Bible and say, okay, here are the simple, clear, obvious truths, and we don't look for the deeper hint. I'll tell you the one that just drives me nuts, is all the books you can get that talk about the number codes in the Bible. And there's these, all these numbers and most of them are based upon English numbering. And it's like, wait a minute, the Bible wasn't even written in English? Okay, and you're counting letters based on English letters and saying this was the hidden meaning that God had when he gave it, which he never gave it in English? And, by the way, does English translations change the way they say certain words? which changes the number in those words that you're counting in a text. and it's or, or this is profound. I saw something in profound numbering in the Bible. Chapter 2, chapter 6. You know, uh, I found it. Verse 66. You know, and so 6, 6, 6. And on top of it, they name a name there. Obama's. Okay, six letters. Did I, I, I did that off the top of my head, so I'm not sure if I counted on. So he must have been Antichrist. 66666. And it's like, really? There, there wasn't even. There wasn't even verses, numbers, when the Bible was originally given. Yeah, be very careful on that. When you're approaching a passage, look for positives and negatives. Look for the commands. Look for the promises. Look for the prohibitions. Uh, approach it from both. Because remember, what it is the, all Scripture is given and is profitable for... Remember what he says? Reproof, correction, instruction. Um, the fourth one. Doctrine. Thank you. Look for the themes within a book. Be wise about word studies. Okay. Yeah. I am all in favor of studying the original language. I really, really am. Okay. 
But is there a danger of doing word studies and studying only a word in a passage? Let me throw this up. Let me just pose this to you. You hear the word bank. What's it mean? Bank, B-A-N-K. What comes to mind? What's that? Ground or money? Any other possibilities? Okay, that idea of a bank. Excuse me. Any other possibilities? Can it be a verb that somebody is? Take it a verbal form of it. You got bank, and now we do banking. What can banking mean? Okay. It can be, it can be counting. It can be depositing. It could be driving your car, okay, or the lawnmower. There's other possibilities of that word. Yes, there's possibilities, Pastor. So every time that word's used, does it mean all those possibilities? Yes or no? No. No. How do you know the way we are using the word bank? Context. Not just the word itself, but context. Okay. I'm going to throw this word. Top. T-O-P. Possibilities. A toy. Clothing. Okay, a place or a position. Okay, a what? Yeah, okay. There's all these possible. It could be an action. Okay, all the possible. So every time you hear the word top, you think of all those being the possibilities. The answer is, no, you don't. What drives the, the definition of the word? The context. Okay, so if I'm only doing a word study, and I'm going to follow through wherever this word. Somebody called me this week. They heard, they heard that the word that shows up for pharmacia, pharmacia, what does it sound like? Pharmacy, okay. They heard that the word pharmacia, which could be related to medicines, okay, or drugs, was used in Revelations, which it is, talking about those who are sorcerers, not being a part of the, um, being cast on the lake of fire uh, in, that, in that context. Therefore, the preacher concluded, every medicine is of the devil. Because pharmacia is used in one verse in relationship to that which is evil. And if you do a word study in scripture, every time you've come up with pharmacia, it's got to be evil. Really? Okay, let me, let me throw this out to you. We get the word, I'm going I'm to use English only. It's in the Greek. Uh, there's, there's yeah, you'll see what I mean. Epithemia. Um, the word lust. Is the, every time the word lust is used in the Bible, it must mean something evil. Do you think that's true? Okay, we're not supposed to follow the lust of our flesh. Okay, is the connotation for lust something evil there? Yes, okay. Can the word lust ever be used in a good setting? Sure. If any man desires the office of a bishop, he what? He desires a good thing. In the original language, he's using two words for desire. One of them is translated lust in several other passages. Okay, so... We cannot make these conclusive statements that, okay, this word is used, I'll, I'll throw a very simple word, day. What does day refer to in scripture? It's a time, but what, what time period, uh, what time limits? Could, could it be, could day refer to the period of sunlight? Think so? Could it refer to a 24-hour period? Could it refer to a long age, such as the day of the... Okay. So you can't say every time day is used, it always means the same thing. What's going to determine the usage? What's king? Context. Context is king. So when we do word studies, we have to remember, even in our culture, words change over a period of time. They do, right? 
We talked about last week. Words changed even in the ancient cultures. And so make sure that you don't come to a text and say, well, this word is used, and it could mean this, it could mean this. You have to understand context. And I'm, and I'm all in favor of understanding the, the, the word and finding out definitions. But you've got... Um, okay, I'm going to look for a compound word. Compound word is putting two words together. Ek, out. Kaleo is to call. There's a word in the New Testament that means to be called out of. It came to be the term that was used for church. Called out of. The people who were called out of. And it was a combination of two words. To be called and out of. And the word is ek kaleo. Put them together, it became ekklesia. Okay, was, the, was one of the derivatives. Eklis, there's a doctrine called ecclesiology. It's the study of the church. Okay, that's a very legitimate thing. Okay, does that give us an identification of what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, we're being called out of the world, called out of activity to come and do something this morning. We're called out to, what's our business to be that we're doing this morning? That we've been called out of our daily activities on this Lord's Day to do what? To worship. Okay, that, and that's legitimate. Okay, let me, so every time you see a compound word, you go back to the original meaning of each one of those, and that's what it means. It happened with ecclesia, but let me give you quarterback. If you try to define quarterback based on quarter and back, that doesn't work. If you say, okay, I'm going to define a butterfly based on butter and fly, okay, that's, that's it, so you, you, have to be, you have to be careful with, with ex, ex, extracting too much and understand, okay, we need to study the word. That's important. God chose the words, but understand they were put in within a context. I would strongly encourage, really encourage, and I know this, is gonna, this could grate some people. I would encourage you, this could be your best tool to do your Bible study. Use multiple translations, multiple versions. Some will give you different insights into interpretation of a passage. Now, use good ones, okay. But use multiple versions, that might help you to, ex- to study. I, I study out of uh, basically two different versions that I use that help me immensely to go back and forth between the two and to work through text. In, I'm talking English versions. Okay? And, and talking through those versions and to say, sometimes I am really impressed by how going back to the... And, I, and, I, and I've been blessed by God to have the, been able to do schooling this way, to be able to be exposed to Hebrew and Greek and to be able to say, hey, you know, sometimes this tag, this translation does a really good job with that passage. Sometimes this translation does a really good job with that passage and blend them together and be able to just see, okay, how does it fit? And understanding that words change over a period of time. Okay, even the way we talk, they change over a period of time. So multiple translations is very helpful. I'm going to have, uh, I think it's next Sunday that I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you a video clip that I think would, would revolutionize, and that's, that's a, hard, a strong term, but I really think it would, revolutionize a lot of your Bible reading is when, when you see this video and look at it and go, you know what, our, we, we, we ha- I, I, I don't know, how do I say this? It's going to sound terrible, but our Bible is a very unique book in the way that it is put together in print. We don't read any other books the way our Bibles look. Do you know what I mean? Most of us, our Bibles have divisions between each sentence. They're called the references. What other book do you read that has that? You're not used to that. Usually, usually when you read books and you see a new paragraph start, what do you think is happening? A new idea or a flowing idea. Where does that happen when most of us in our Bibles, our Bibles aren't laid out that way? Okay? It's almost every sentence is laid out that way. Does that impact our studying to sometimes dissect too much? Does that make sense? The way we were trained, and I'm talking about, I'm not trying to be irreverent to our Bible, but the way we are taught to read, it could impact us, and maybe it would be helpful for us to get and look at a Bible that isn't quite the way our Bible is laid out, but get a Bible that is laid out more in 
common book form. In fact, studies have showed time and time again that people increase their Bible reading when they pick up Bibles that are like that because it's more natural to what we're used to. We'll talk about that next week in a, in a video. And again, I'm not trying to create a, a firestorm, so don't overreact. We're just talking about tools that you can use. Now, here's the question that we have that I was supposed to be at 20 minutes ago. How can we be sure that when we study the Bible, we get only the Bible and all the Bible? What I mean by that is this. You are sitting, I'm thinking most of you are sitting here this morning with a Bible that has how many books in the Old Testament, how many in the New? How many in the Old? This, is, this wasn't to, to throw you off. Okay, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. Okay, so you have a book that has, 20, uh, 20, has 66 different books. Okay, my question is this. Are there other groups that have more or less books inserted in their Bible? There are. There are. Okay, there are. Were there other books written at the same time that Paul was writing that aren't in the Bible? Yes, there were. Did Paul write books that aren't in the Bible? He did. We know of two of them. At least two of them that he wrote that are mentioned in the New Testament. Do you remember which ones? He wrote a letter to the Laodiceans when he wrote to the Church of Colossae and the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. When he was writing those, he wrote to the Laodiceans. Also, how many letters do we know for sure he wrote to the Corinthians? Three. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I have written you a letter before. Okay? So why isn't pre-1 Corinthians a part of the Scriptures? Why isn't the book of Laodicean in the Scriptures? What about the books that were written by the other apostles that are claimed to... What, there's books, there's series of books that were written that claim to be written by Mary Magdalene, John the Baptist... Um, several uh, books like this that tell us about the childhood of Jesus Christ. In those books, we read things like when Jesus was walking down the road and they were hungry on the way to Egypt. They're walking down the road, they're hungry, and as Jesus was with his parents and fleeing from um, Herod, the trees would bow down and go to the ground so that they would just have to reach over and grab the fruit. Or when Jesus was being picked on by the boys in the village of Nazareth, Jesus got upset and turned them all into birds. And so a whole bunch of boys flew away. Okay? That when Jesus was playing in the fields, the kids were climbing a tree, and he just flew up to the top of the tree. Okay? Th- these are books that were circulating during, during those early... Tr- Why aren't they included in Scripture? Okay, by the way, they're not inspired. That's the key. How do you know those books, the stories I just told you, how do you know they're not inspired? Somebody had to, somebody had to examine them and say they're not in. Okay? Right, think, think carefully. How do you know they weren't inspired? They're not the character of Jesus. There is a clear, clear verse that says this was the first miracle that Jesus did. It's written in the Gospel of John. It's referring to, yeah, you got it, the wedding of Cana. It's his, first, it's his please excuse, the, it's not right, his coming out miracle. It's the first one. Therefore, what does that say about all those childhood things? They were not true. The word is they're not, they're, they're called spurious writings. That means S-P-U- R-I-O-U-S. It means false writings. And that's based upon those, do not, those writings do not attest to others that portray the character of Jesus, that show clearly inspiration, um, uh, fingerprints all over, that go contrary to the doctrine of the New Testament. And so somebody had to sit down and examine all those things. And it happened over a period of time. And so you and I have to be historically honest. That says, okay, um, when, how did they figure out which books belong and which didn't? Who figured that out is probably the big question here. And many people will point to and they say, okay, it didn't happen until 397 A.D. In 397, just before 400, so it took almost, you know, 300, 
150 years before they got the Bible compiled and at the Council of Trent, they finally put it all together at this one council in 397. That is popular history that is propagated by organized churches. In particular, which church would use this? The Catholic Church, because they were the church at that time. And uh, so they, they look and they say, this is history that we decided which books. I totally take, take exception to all that. Okay, then here's the reasons why. Okay, how do we know our 66 books, we're not shortcutting ourselves, we're not giving ourselves too much? Let's, do, let's just do a brief review of history. We have to remember how inspiration works. Okay, and uh, inspiration works this way. There's a, there's a whole process in inspiration. When God put together the Bible, and uh, this is very, 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 very important to just make sure we're all on the same page to we get to the, to the answer to the question we have. There's a sequence that took place when God was giving the Bible. He started with a sequence we're going to use for terms' sake that is to put in human understanding. There's revelation. Revelation simply means communication from God to man that man could not get on his own. Okay, that God had to give this information out. This is revelation that talks about God that gives some truth. There are two methods. There are two parts. There are two ways that he gave revelation. Okay, we're going to, for, for sake of discussion, most theologians and most of you would say, okay, there's two types of revelation. There is general revelation and then there is special revelation. And they are exactly what the terms are. General revelation is that which generally came to everybody. That everybody could see. Romans talks about this. Everybody can see God in, cre- in nature, in creation. God revealed himself. How many people can look around and see creation? Everyone. What else did God give to everyone that everyone has that reveals a moral code? Conscience, okay, conscience. Romans, he talks about again. Everybody has that. Then, so, so God gave some revealing of himself to everyone. General revelation. Special revelation is exactly what we're talking about. God revealing himself in a special way. What special ways did God reveal truth about himself? Prophets, that's special. Think back in the Old Testament. How else did God speak to people? They had prophets, they had Somebody said visions. Angels. How did God tell Joseph about Mary? In a dream, an angel appeared. Um, who, who encompasses the most special revelation? Everything he did was revealing God. Jesus Christ is special revelation. He himself is revelation. And it was all done in a supernatural way, like his... his um, incarnation and all. So you have these different, different areas of revelation. Then there's inspiration. Inspiration is a step further. Inspiration is that God-breathed communication where God is speaking. And this was the special work done by the Holy Spirit in which he controlled. Let, let's take a prophet. He's taking Isaiah. He's saying, Isaiah, this is the message I want you to relay. So God spoke to Isaiah to make sure that Isaiah got it right. God superintended. God made sure... Okay, let, let me ask you. Do you ever get messages wrong? Do you ever leave messages that get wrong? Why? How do they get wrong? You, it's hard to understand sometimes the message left. Okay? What, what else? I'm going to give a message to somebody through somebody. Does that always work 100%? Does it sometimes get skewered because the the way it's passed on. Okay, now think this through. God wants to get his revelation, special revelation to people of that time that he's talking to. Okay, Moses, I want this message given to the people at Mount Sinai. So God wants to make sure it's happening. He's using a man. By the way, let's add this word. What type of a man? A fallible man. So God superintends so that Moses hears it correctly, okay? He gave him a spiritual hearing aid, okay, of some sort. And then that Moses does what? What's the next important part of this? He communicates it clearly, whether he is speaking it or whether he is writing it down. That's inspiration. That's why we say all Scripture is God-breathed. He superintended it. Now, part of it is called inscripturation, 
Okay? And by the way, we know this is true. Peter talks about how God was speaking and carrying along through the Holy Spirit, the men, so that he was superintending. He was the force behind these men, hearing and writing it. So we've come to the doctrine that's called inscripturation. What, what do you think this refers to? When we say think inscripturation, sounds like inscribed. We're talking about what aspect of delivery? The writing of it down. Okay, the books of the Bible. What we say is that God superintended the recording of his revelation. As they were recording and writing it down, God chose the exact words and phrases, but at the same time, personality comes up. For instance, I've used this illustration with you before. Paul is writing in Galatians, said, you see what big letters I'm writing with because I'm so animated by this. God didn't say, write these words with no feeling. Okay, like a robot. That's not the case. This is a miracle work that God could have them write the exact words, the right phrases. By the way, if you don't get this, you leave your Bible open to you know, criticism, subjectivity. And so it was much more than God saying, write in the beginning, God. It was much more than that. Because the personality, the moments, the, the intellect, the styles. By the way, you read the different epistles, you got different styles, stylistic writing. And it was much more than God saying, hey Moses, I have an idea about Ten Commandments. Um, you write it however you want, but basically I just want people to be good. But you choose what you want to write. Uh-uh. God gave more than an idea and then let them write it. God was superintending this, which means that what happens, and, and we'll talk about this next week, that it stopped with the completion of the scriptures, as we are told, don't add to the scriptures, but it's to be renewed. God will start again, new revelation in the book of tri uh, the tribulation in that era of time. But here's where it brings us back to, is that God now helps us to understand. So we have God, man, God gives them revelation. The Holy Spirit helps to get it written down in specifics, the original writing, written down accurately. We read it, and then the Holy Spirit helps us to understand it. This is all the work of God. Which brings us back to this, this is an important statement. The Bible is a result of supernatural direct work of God. In, in guaranteeing that what was originally given was 100% from God and accurate. So my question is, who determined which books are inspired? Hmm? God did. This isn't a question of who decided which books are, are inspired. That's not the issue at all in church history. Because God determined it. What men had to do was what? Not determine which ones are inspired, but to simply recognize which ones were inspired. There's a big difference. Men never decided. They merely recognized. What would you use? What tools would you use? What standard would you use for, de for saying, I'm recognizing this book is inspired and not this one? What would you look for? What kind of things? Just quickly, and it's cast up. Accuracy. Great. Absolute. What else? What's that? The Holy Spirit's direction. Would you look for the theme? Does it give the same message? Would you look for who wrote it? Holy men of God were born along by the Spirit. Would you look for the impact it can have? Would you look for, does it, does it give us the story of, who's it's got to tell us about? It's got to give us the story of Jesus. So it, this isn't something that is mystical. This is something that is very, very clear historically, but understanding from these doctrinal points of view. And I ran out of time. I can't believe I went too long in some areas. That's just so abnormal. Okay, let's pick up.